Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Paul Radu, an investigative journalist and co-founder of the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP. The OCCRP has done amazing work during the last two decades in researching and telling the stories mainstream media often won't touch. Stories about organised crime, environmental destruction, international arms trafficking and money laundering. The last five decades have seen the dramatic globalisation of organised crime and corruption, now totalling trillions of dollars every year. There's a criminal services industry of corrupt banks, law firms, company registration agents and lobbyists helping criminal networks to grow their markets and in many many countries to legitimise their capital. This network has also enabled the world's most corrupt officials and tycoons to loot, launder and hide their wealth. The growth of high-level corruption and organised crime has fuelled global inequality, the rise of extremist groups and the decline of democratic institutions all over the world. Listen in to the next 30 minutes for more on this vital topic. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so on Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right-hand column of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Paul, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners about yourself, your area of work, and the OCCRP? Thank you, Paul, um, for inviting me to your podcast. Um, I'm a co-founder of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. Um, I'm an investigative reporter from uh, Romania originally, but now wandering the world. for the past 15 years uh, since we've started uh, OCCRP. Uh, OCCRP is a platform uh, for investigative reporting focused on organized crime and on high-level corruption. Um, It's a gathering of uh, like-minded investigative reporters, editors, uh, tech people. We've built our um, own systems um, on the back of our work, systems to process data, systems to secure the network, systems to be able to work across borders in a safe and secure way. So we're kind of kind of um, a whole package of investigative reporting focused on this type of uh, transnational uh, crime and corruption. Thank you. Now, they say in, uh, in, in cases of corruption or political scandal that the correct thing for investigative journalists to do is to follow the money. Uh, how easy has it been over the last 20 years to follow the money? Is it getting easier or is it becoming... More of a challenge. It's actually becoming more of a challenge the more you understand how uh, money laundering works, and the more you understand how criminals have built their networks over decades. So it's a bit like journalists right now play catch up with the criminals. You look back fifty years ago, and you see criminals already operating at a level that's beyond, that's above nation state. And um, investigative reporters only started working um, at that level, at a cross-trans-borders level, in a, about 10, 12 years ago, in the real sense of, of working um, um, at that particular place. And that's where the big organized crime and corruption meet. That's where they do business. That's where they're really efficient against national law enforcement, against international law enforcement, as little as that is. So I'd say that overall it's become more difficult 
to be able to investigate large transnational groups, but that's only because we're able to see more of what is going on out there. So if in the past we'd be happy with the story here and there, and uh, we'd be gloating about that and, uh, you know, be, be, be very proud of, of, our, of our work, which we should be, is that we've actually just followed a bit of the money. You know, we, we've, we followed crumbles. And that's, um, that's where we need to up our game. And that's, I think, where we changed investigative reporting between OCCRP, ICIJ, and other net- networks. We've been more efficient in our cross-border cooperations and able to see more of what is going on with the recognition that this is still only slices of the overall yeah. um, financial game that let, involves... Let me at that point ask you about, about your... You, you mentioned the ICIJ. Um, you, you work with them on... At, you know, uncovering and analyzing some of the biggest ever leaks of financial information, the, the Pandora Papers, the Panama Papers, and other similar leaks. Now, these, uh, I've you know, dipped into these uh, stories, and it seems to me that these are a goldmine of information about who's doing what. You uh, On your website, OCCRP's website, you, you have a number of stories showing how the funds of particular politicians from countries around the world have moved, what, how they've been used to buy real estate, from 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 a superficial perspective, it seems that you have made a lot of progress in linking money flows to particular people and particular um, entities. So, are you saying, you know, from what given what you said earlier, are you saying that you, you still think we've only scratched the surface? Oh yeah, I mean, um, I work with ICAJ. I'm an ICAJ member since 2003, so I've done a lot of investigative reporting with ICAJ. Most of CCRP investigative editors and reporters uh, work with ICAJ on, on large projects, and we have our own large projects where we co other ICAJ members. Um, but even, even if I look back, like 15 years ago, we started in you know exposing high-level corruption, and then one thing that we, we saw was that we were investigating the, the same thing over and over again because we've identified a pattern. Crime is, is like a commodity in many respects. You know, it moves across borders. Criminal groups use whatever local advantage that they, they can get to uh, increase their networking. So after understanding all this, that we were repeating the same and reinventing the wheel um, at all times, we decided to go against something else. That's the criminal services in industry. That's the enablers. That's the people who put together all this infrastructure that's used by, by criminals. And I think that was um, a game changer in terms of both OCCRP and ICAJ, because we understood that we have to go a lot bigger than uh, we've, uh, we've done before. Now, this being said, you take a project like Panama Papers, and Panama Papers, the leak itself, is from the fourth largest law firm in Panama that was dealing and shaping up and, and putting together, together infrastructure for many criminals to use around the world, and kleptocrats. So if you think about that, the fourth largest in Panama. Panama is one country in Central America. It's not that big. It is an offshore, uh, or it was a huge offshore uh, financial center, but there are many Panamas in the world. Many, many are in Europe. Many are in Delaware or in, in, in other states in the US. Many are in Asia. I mean, look at Singapore. Look at, uh, you know, places like Dubai. We haven't gotten leaks from those places that much. We have here and there. So this is why I'm saying that what we were able to see is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more that we need to understand and a lot more to be leaked out there in order for us to understand better what's going on. On top of that... So 
So we're only seeing a small part of the of the puzzle. In, in, in it's a maybe three dimensional or more than three dimensional puzzle, and and we're only seeing bits of it. Yeah, I, I think we we've, we've really seen just just bits of it. And the reality of this is, when you look at um, you know, I I coined many years ago this uh, term, the laundromat, in the context yeah. of large uh, money laundering um, kind of operations. And when we saw the first laundromats, we were you know struck by the fact that. You see one single bank account used at the same time by various criminal groups, which at first for the untrained eye of an university reporter might say, well, there's a conspiracy there. All these groups work together. But in reality, it's the fact is that these financial uh, systems, these money laundering systems are put together by the same people, but offered to multiple criminal groups. So criminals are always up for opportunity. They're uh, what I call early tech adopters. So when we when we only saw slices from what uh, from uh, from what, what was going on in the in the banking system, for instance, with our laundromats, I'm saying we don't even see that much, you know, from what happens with with crypto. We have huge yeah. scandals. Can, can right I now stop with... you there for a second, Paul, and just ask you to expand a little bit on on the laundromat scheme that you were you know instrumental in uncovering? Because I, I heard you speak at a on another podcast recording from an, the Aspen conference earlier this year, uh, where you talked about how you had been at a conference, I think in 2011, had, had spoken to some of the banks there and pointed out that they had a problem. And they were saying, no, no, there's, there's no problem. Our compliance teams are the best in the world. Uh, we don't recognize what you're saying. And, and yet five years later, they were coming to you because they realized that there was a systemic problem and that they needed to look at it in a totally different way. So just for, for, for listeners' benefit, for anyone who's not familiar, the laundromats, you know, just to take you know, one of them, the, the money laundry from the former Soviet Union was going through bank branches in... I believe Estonia and branches of European banks, Latvia, Deutsche Bank, and, and others, and Latvia. And then it was being there was another leg to it, which was that legal structures from the UK and from 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 offshore centres were then being used to help launder the money. It seemed like a, a many tentacles to the operation. And so you're saying that this is a it's an example of the of the the, the schemes that the, the the money launderers use, and it's uh, very well worked out and very efficient in a sense. Yeah, these are these are schemes that were devised by criminals over decades, and uh, we've only got wind of them in the past decade. So uh, they're they're probably worked, you know, another 10, 20 years um, um, in this way, and we just haven't noticed. And the banks haven't noticed because many, many people discount the criminals. You know, they believe the criminals are just some thugs, you know, with no brains. But a lot of these criminals have chosen this type of life, and they could have been excellent entrepreneurs you know they they could have you know started up companies that would have been very very successful except they chose crime and they continue doing that crime and they build up on that crime and this is what what people sometimes choose to ignore the continuity of crime it's not like someone pulls off a scheme a criminal scheme makes some money and runs off with the money and that's it no they will actually continue doing their criminal business and we have a new breed of, uh, of, of criminals right now. Um, I call them criminal angel investors. Now, these criminal angel investors, they are the ones you know, interested in financing more crime because crime is lucrative and gives them a huge return on investment. So I think that's where banks did not understand um, you know, that the, the, the fact that these criminals are really gaming the system, that they're able to use not just one single bank, but many banks at the same time. And they were using the fact that these banks were not communicating with, with each other because of competition and, and, and other reasons. Um, they're using very, very well the way the world is fragmented. 
I mean, just imagine you have, you know, a criminal group operating between Iran and the U.S. and Europe. Do you see any cooperation between Iranian law enforcement, the FBI and the Europol? I don't think so. So this is where, where really the, the criminals have the upper hand. They're able to uh, operate across frontiers. They're able to apply the latest technology, technologies to their um, money laundering and, and other crimes. And they go about it undetected. And this is this is the problem. I mean, journalists, I think... We're Can doing... I stop you there for a point, uh, for a second, Paul? Absolutely. Because the, 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 um, uh, we, we corresponded briefly on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago when um, I, I, I noticed something that Graham Barrow, who's been also been on this podcast, wrote about the very slow pace of reforms to, to the UK company's house, company's registration system. And you wrote underneath that uh, uh, comment by Graham that, that, that very few people understand how big a problem that is. Now, it seems to me that, that this uh, problem we have in the UK, where the company's house still doesn't check the identity of people um, registering companies, uh, still doesn't check that information is accurate, uh, and it's still being used on a large scale for fraudulent companies to, to, to operate, people's identities are being stolen on a very large scale. Now, this is a, an example, it seems to me, of what you've just been saying, that national governments are just way behind uh, where they need to be. And in the UK, I still hear politicians saying, you know, we want to stay open for, for business. We encourage people to set up a company for you know, an investment of £12. You can set up a company at Companies House and submit the information online. How on earth are we ever going to get to a kind of global you're saying that the criminals are operating on a global scale. How, how on earth are, are the people combating them ever going to be able to respond? Well, I believe um, in the UK as well as in many other countries. And in this respect, I should say that the UK is a lot more transparent than other places on earth where criminals operate. So it's, it's still a huge problem. But, you know, compared to, to other places, you know, like you take Dubai and Dubai is a huge financial center and a huge money laundering center right now. And there's no transparency there whatsoever. Yeah, but the U but, UK is more transparent, but it's also the, the place where a lot of criminal money has landed in the real estate market. It's been used on a very large scale to, to help people launder that uh, illicit cash. Absolutely. Transparency is not enough. This is yeah. the, um, the thing. I mean, when we started uh, our work at um, OCCRP, we looked a, lo a lot at New Zealand companies, New Zealand-based companies. And there was transparency there. There was a registry of companies. There was, you know, with, with a lot of data, with financials and all that. Except that, you know, the people pushed in front of those companies were just proxies from Vanuatu, from other places. So transparency without a system behind it that, you know, stops these uh, criminals from operating as usual is meaningless. So beneficial ownership laws are, uh, are needed. But not just in, in some countries, you know, there's, there's, there's a need for, for a global push. There's a need for a global overhaul of uh, how politics is financed. I think a lot of it comes from, from there. And I'm not looking right now at the UK. I'm looking at the US as well. I'm looking at other countries where there, there are huge problems in how politicians um, get financed left and right. So I think the root of the, of, of, of the problem is there, is in politics. It is a political problem because technically, we can all unify all the data sets that we have, you know, uh, in the world, property databases, company databases. And by just doing that simple technical step, we would, I, I, I believe, get rid of a big chunk of, uh, of, of our corruption right now. I've heard you say that introducing public land registries around the world would be an enormous step in changing the whole way that politics work around the world and in and combating money laundering. Why is land? Why is the having public land registries such a big deal? 
Well, because I, I, I live for a, for quite some time in Mexico for, for a few years, and uh, you look at um, the Mexican drug uh, drug groups there, the Jalisco group, the Sinaloa, and what you see is enormous amounts of money. And when you look at the the expenses that they have, I mean, yeah, sure, there's the luxury kind of item here and there, the luxury car, the yacht, but but there's there's just too much money. The the amounts are, are overwhelming, hundreds and hundreds of billions. So where do that money go? I mean, that's that's the big question. And we've identified that some of it, at least, is invested in real estate, in buying up land, in buying up lake water surfaces, in buying up uh, um, uh, all sorts of forest and, and so on. So we're talking about large portions of, of earth that might be right now owned by criminals that have this uh, this 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 much money at their disposal. So I believe. You know, and we focused in the past years um, a bit on the on the obvious places: London, the south of France, various places, Florida, for instance, and others, where we looked and we found a lot of uh, the property owned from Russian oligarchs to kleptocrats from Kazakhstan to kleptocrats from Africa and South America and the U.S. and and everywhere. But the reality of this is, <clears throat> there's no effort right now that's at the political level. To kind of open up these these uh, registries, to open up these databases and connect them to politically exposed persons' databases, to connect them with registries of companies, with uh, registries of BOs. So by doing this, I think you know we would not just go for meaningless transparency, but use something that the criminals cannot control. What they can't control is the fact that laws can change and transparency can increase across borders. This is one of the, the biggest assets at OCCRP. We know how to play between jurisdictions. We know that if Cyprus opened up the Davis database, we'll for sure find criminality in that database if we mix it with other databases that we have at our disposal and if we mix it with the patterns that we've already identified in order to find crime and corruption. So each 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 country that you know, did this would actually help, you know, it would be a, kind of a progressive thing. So one country saying yes, we'll make our land registry open to everybody, ownership details open to everybody. That would help you incrementally. You can then use your own database to to absolutely understand better what's going on. Absolutely, and and I believe that that's that's the only way where we can get rid of of. A, big chunk of the corruption that happens right now that affects everybody and that chips at democracy and, and all that. So I think opening up databases in a meaningful way and especially property registries, but not just real estate. I mean, really all type of property that would be, that would be amazing. And that would really be something that would contribute to changing the world and changing the political systems, because a lot of these bribes are not in money are not, you know, in, in cash and so on, but in assets. And that's what where, response uh, have you had to these uh, these you know what have you what what have you had in response to this suggestion? I mean, I'm talking to you from the UK, where it's not a problem, not only a question of lack of transparency, but a lot of the land is actually not registered in the first place. It's not, you know, they tried to do it in the 19th century, and because of pushback, I understand from the large landowners, they didn't do it, and uh, and that's still the case. There's still a lot of I think 30 or 40 percent of the land in the UK is not registered at all. Yeah, that's 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 a big, big, big portion of it. Um, yeah, well, the, the usual argument is that these type of efforts are very costly, um, and um, in, in in some countries, property registries are um, approachable. I mean, you can actually use data from uh, from these registries, but they are very expensive. 
And they say, well, we can't offer this up for free because, you know, there's maintenance costs and maintenance. But, you know, the reality is that there's huge maintenance costs at the country level because you don't really address this maintenance cost, uh, costs at the database level. And that's, you know, I mean, the discrepancy between this is, is huge. But people just, just don't understand because they sometimes, and especially politicians, and I'm not talking here about the bad will, you know, of, of politicians and the fact that, you know, some of them are crooks and so on. I'm really talking about people who don't, who think in a fragmented way about these systems. Then they don't understand how that system fits overall into the larger uh, strategies, anti-corruption, anti-organized crime. It's, it's not easy. It's, it's really about the mindset. Um, and I, I believe, you know, this, this is changing. Uh, we're seeing right now, um, in, in, in some respect, the opposite of that when it comes to, to leaks. We're seeing more and more people willing to leak information. There's a diluvium of leaks, if you <laughs> allow me to say this. But it's, yeah. it's, and, 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 and that's something where, you know, I think a lot of these data sets will be leaked. A lot of it will be, will be used for, for good, for investigative reporting. But then... On the other side, this needs to be a concerted effort. This needs to go um, across at least entities like the, you know, countries like the UK or, you know, the, the EU and, and other places where there's a lot of money that's sunk into this country by really bad parties from, you know, poorer areas of, of the world. And that's, that's I yeah. think, where, you know, a, a change in mindset is, is needed, you know, at the level of these databases and how they would work together. Yeah, Paul, you've talked about how um, individual countries taking steps like that can help in a, a lot. What I mean, taking the opposite argument, what about if countries go in the other direction and remove themselves completely from the kind of the international financial system? We've seen a couple of countries in the last couple of years uh, saying they want to introduce Bitcoin as legal tender and you know say goodbye to the IMF and you know go away. We're not going to take loans from you anymore. We're going to do everything in Bitcoin. Many people have suggested that this is a kind of collaboration with organized crime groups. You know, what, what, what happens if countries start to go in the other direction and, and, and we get a kind of autarky and uh, no one's cooperating and, and the, the money flows become even harder to track? This is obviously a very, very complex um, question um, that requires political answers and technical answers. But in short, from my point of view, what I'm seeing is that criminals don't usually like to put to place their money where they steal from. So if a criminal is in Russia and loots Russia, that criminal will very likely put that money outside of, uh, of Russia. Because in an environment where you have thieves, obviously there's no honor of, uh, among thieves and there's no respect and, and, and such, and they will not want themselves to get uh, uh, robbed. So even these steps, you know, that some countries in the in the Western world, you know, in, in the US, in Europe, in UK, you know, if, if, if these countries would go for more transparency, that would make a di big difference because there's a lot of talk about creating MIR, for instance. You know, I mean, uh, you know, Russia created MIR, this kind of parallel system to SWIFT um, uh, for, for money transferring and so on. But it's not quite working. I mean, you look at it and you look at the countries that embraced it and they're trying to help Russia here and there. But it's very, very small scale. So the bulk of the money, it's still in fiat currency and, and, and in the West. And most yeah. of the property is still there. I mean, we've identified some of that. We've looked at, you know, after Russia started the war in Ukraine, we looked at uh, Russian oligarchs with their assets in the West. And we found quite, quite a lot. And we've found a lot before, you know, February of, of this year. But then, then you look at something like um, the cryptocurrency uh, kind of trend. And we, 
we see right now with FTX and with everybody that's uh, that the system is a bit uh, or parts of the system uh, system are collapsing, and there's you know scandal after scandal because a lot of this is done again uh, by countries like you know when you look at countries that adopted uh, Bitcoin for instance El Salvador these are unfortunately countries that are very poor and riddled with corruption but even they haven't gone all in because they realize it's it's so risky and. Yeah, I mean, you know, and we're seeing lots of criminals uh, opening up <coughs> exchanges, crypto exchanges, and they've done this for the past 10 years. So they are, as I mentioned before, early tech adopters, and they're looking for opportunity to move money around the world. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still small compared to what's going on in the banking system. So it's, it's still... So the criminals, the need, they, still need the, they still need the liquid markets to place their money into at the end of the chain. Absolutely. They, 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 they're not going to, unless, I mean, if you're Putin, you probably have to build your holiday home in, on the Black Sea coast. But if you're uh, some of his ministers, you still prefer to be in Paris or uh, Miami or London or wherever. So uh, Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the palace of Putin at, at the Black Sea, that's going to be, Interesting to see after uh, this uh, conflict, after the war, the Russian war uh, in Ukraine is, is finalized. It's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what that place becomes. Can I ask you for a second about that conflict? Because I, I had a look on the OCCPR, uh, sorry, OCCRP website about, uh, you know, just did, some, did some searches for some of the politicians involved. And it's quite striking that there are, you know, that both countries, Russia and Ukraine, feature very prominently in, in corruption stories. You know, I think someone had pointed out that in the Pandora Papers leaks, there were more Ukrainian politicians than from any other country. How has your, you know, background investigating organized crime and corruption given you a different perspective on that conflict? Well, uh, a bit of a different perspective because, yeah, Ukraine was was a huge money laundering center. Our initial laundromats that we investigating, uh, investigating start, investigated starting with 2011 um, shown, um, have shown that Kyiv was a central point for these type of operations. Uh, but then when you looked at who were the people b- behind it, you, you'd see that most of them were connected with the Kremlin and with the Putin Camarilla. So um, this is what, what changed after 2014, I think, um, because there was more transparency in Ukraine. Um, the civil society in Ukraine and some parts of the government tried to clean up the act um, as much as they could. Uh, so the corruption decreased um, to some extent in Ukraine. And, and I'm talking about um, grand corruption. I'm talking about high-level money laundering in the billions and hundreds of billions. So that have, um, has become more difficult in Ukraine. And I believe that's one of the reasons why Putin started the war. The fact that he couldn't tolerate uh, Ukraine not being uh, part of the fold, not being part of that corruption that enabled Russia and enabled uh, the Kremlin to thrive. Because with those pipelines, with the Ukrainian pipelines cut, that created a huge problem uh, for Russia. So Ukraine is still corrupt. I, I'd say it's, it's a lot less corrupt than Russia. And I think that's, that's really important. But it's really a place where people pushed for transparency. It was easier, you know. Now, now, now it's harder with the war because they um, shut down access to some of the databases. But until uh, uh, this war uh, started, it was easier to get information about companies and property in Ukraine than it is, uh, for instance, to get the same type of information from the UK or from right. most European countries. So I think that's yep. where where the difference is. And of course, that's not you know to say that this is why the war started. But I think it played 
some role in why uh, Putin decided to invade Ukraine. Yeah. Um, looking forward, uh, Paul, over the next 10 years, you've obviously, you know, your, your, institute, your organization has become you know, very large. You, you're, you're analyzing some of the biggest data sets in the world. You're, you, know, have a, you have a great deal of political clout, I would say, now in, in, in your work. You know, what are you focusing on for the next uh, few years, the next decade? Um, well, I think um, the immediate problem is uh, the amount of data that we're confronted with. And I'm talking not just about OCCRP, but the larger uh, investigative reporting community. There are many, many terabytes of um, information, and not just public information, but leaks and others that we do need to process. Now, the costs for processing this information um, these this volumes of information is just too large right now uh, for um, an organization like OCCRP or ICAJ. So we need to come together as a community and deal with this problem because we do need to serve the people the best um, uh, uh, we can. The other thing that's, that's going to have a huge impact on how investigative reporting and journalism in general is done is that we do need to update our follow the money techniques big time. I mean, even if this first crypto wave is not the success that uh, everybody thought it would be because of the the problems uh, in the systems, um, crypto is still the future, I believe. I believe there's still a lot in that te- technology that uh, that will be used for, you know, from DeFi, from de- decentralized finance to, to other things. So I think we do need to be there as investigative reporters and we do need to understand a bit more of the technology and to become more intertwined with with technologies that are designed for investigative reporting this is so this because is cryptocurrency be- is because cryptocurrency is traceable uh, it, it's it, it can play a big role in helping the kind of work that you do well i, I think there's there's got to be a combination of, of, of factors there because uh, cryptocurrencies are traceable to some extent, but there are many private blockchains where you'd need leaks or you'd need sources inside certain communities to get uh, information about those uh, type of transactions. There are there's a lot that uh, that's happening right now in the NFT world. I mean, properties are sold as NFTs right now, so we do need to understand a bit uh, better how code works, and we need uh, we do need um, a lot more computing power um, and a lot more access to to computing clouds. And obviously, you know, everybody's speaking about um, artificial intelligence and all. We are applying some machine learning to the system that we have created. But it's very likely that artificial intelligence will be needed to weed out at least some of the um, some of the errors in, in, in various of these, uh, these systems. So it's, it's really about upping our technological game while also understanding the cultures across continents. This is going to be very, very important because... One one thing that we've done um, at OCCRP with great success was to follow the money, to follow the financial flows. But we don't didn't always um, understand the, the the impact that those financial flows had on the ground in various parts of the world. So connecting more to local communities, connecting more to people who can who can do this type of work and who can describe this type of work uh, in, in, in interesting uh, ways, in interesting stories is crucial. On top of that, we are overwhelmed with work. We need to probably increase the number of investigative reporters in the world by, by, by many, many folds. And we probably need to co-opt 
other sectors in doing this type of work. And I'm not just talking about due diligence uh, people, you know, with compliance uh, services in banks and other financial institutions. I'm talking about a new type of citizen journalism where this is more like an investigative citizen journalism where you can really go big and use the data that's available because, I mean, honestly, we're too few to do this type of work right now. We can provide a bit of the roadmap, but we need a lot more people to join in to be efficient, to see beyond that tip of the iceberg, to see below the water, you know, what's, what's going on there. I've been following the FTX crypto exchange scandal I think fraud is probably the right word on on Twitter, and there are there, there are very many, um, you know, very talented investigative, um, I'd say, reporters, uh, citizen journalists, uncovering things there. So this is the kind of thing that you would like to see more of with your organization. Absolutely, absolutely. I think in between what we do, um, like this more traditional investigative reporting and follow the money processes. Uh, and what Bellingcat does and what, you know, the, the sleuths that you're mentioning are doing, that's where, where the future is. We just need a lot more uh, people involved with these type of processes. And we need to be more open about our work and about how we, how we set up our systems. We need to be ourselves a bit more transparent for people to be able to follow path and improve on the system that the systems that we've uh, created and do do maybe you know work work that is is much better than uh, what we're currently doing so if individuals listening to this podcast wanted to get in, involved what's the best way for, for them to do so well they can um, they can write us um, uh, they can write me at paul at occrp.org they can get in touch with us uh, we can probably, uh, you know, act as a relay sometimes towards other uh, organizations. We work with investigative reporters all over the world. We have uh, 50 investigative editors right now, and some of them are in Papua New Guinea, for instance, or in Vanuatu. <laughs> so, you know, and so the, the idea is that um, uh, we um, can use this network to, to do work and uh, to serve the public in the way we can serve the public uh, without making uh, um, uh, any promises. And we're always trying to um, under-promise and over-deliver. And, and just uh, and obviously uncovering some of these stories, it could come up you know, significant personal risk to the people doing it. Uh, how can you ensure that people getting involved in this area are not putting themselves at significant risk? So um, they can get in touch with us through our Secure Leaks platform. Uh, where um, um, the names of individuals and uh, their locations and everything connected to the individuals uh, will uh, will not be identified. So that's uh, that's a way uh, to get in touch with us. Um, that's that's a lot more more secure if people want to leak information if they have something that's uh, that's very sensitive. Um, so that's that's another way that they can get in touch with us. And I would advise that um, as a primary mean of contact. Uh, if people are, you know, have have some data that's sensitive, uh, if people want to work with us and 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 do work with us, that's you know, email email is fine. But it, security is of utmost importance at OCCRP. We, you know, we're creating right now, uh, and we've created for a long time digital security systems, legal security systems. We're going to soon launch an initiative that's basically an uh, an insurance for investigative reporting uh, around the world. To protect them against uh, against libel um, uh, lawsuits, uh, the so-called slaps, um, and so on. So, and and obviously, physical security is is of uh, huge importance to us. Where at the level of OCCRP, with our editors, with our reporters, 
we undergo uh, counter surveillance courses and other things that are necessary when you're um, uh, investigating and exposing organized crime groups. Yeah, well, that's the sad reality of working in this area, I guess. Absolutely, unfortunately. Yeah, Paul, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a fascinating chat and good luck with your work. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.